street with the brim pulled way down low. Ain't no sound but the sound of his feet, and he wants to listen to the Stick to Wrestling show. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam, and this is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 seconds, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast, pal. There are some good podcasts out there. We're all aware. But are they wicked good? Is this the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there? I'll tell you what. Let's ask Joey Ramone. Clearly, he is the expert on wrestling podcasts, and he's given you the answer. I'm going to talk a little bit about social media. Please, if you have not done so already, feel free to join our Facebook group. What goes on on the Facebook group? Let me give you a little example. Yesterday, Cartwright Jones, friend of mine, friend of the show, he's going to be on as a guest sometime, starts a discussion. Right choice, wrong time. Title changes that you think negatively affected because they either happened too soon or too late for an ideal outcome. Turned into a really good, informative conversation. All you have to do is sign up. You can read it and participate with it. I also put up a Crockett Cup 1989 tournament. The readers vote on the results. We're down to the final four. The Steiner brothers against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy in one bracket. And the Midnight Express against Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard in the other bracket. Winners face each other in the finals. So there you have it. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, just put in the word John McAdam. You see two guys hitting each other with chairs. Bang, follow that guy. I don't 100% stick to wrestling there, but there's a lot of good wrestling content. Uh, John, two other quick things to, for the Facebook. Is uh-huh. One is our group watches. Yes. Yes, thank you. Every Sunday... We have had every Sunday, 6 o'clock Eastern, a bunch of us has gotten together and watched something on the WWE Network, and you can join us for that. And with that, I want to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you holding up in the weirdest time in United States history since World War II? Well, I mean, considering, you know, I don't know, I'm hanging in pretty fine. It's, you know, I just keep myself busy and... Uh, you know, just try not to d- avoid the news. That is my number one advice. Just avoid the news. You know, they have a little pager from the governor and he kind of gives you updates every day. And that's it. Just avoid the rest of the news, though. It's that's the best mental health tip I can give you. I'm the crazy person that follows Trump on Twitter just to get himself that's mad. But anyway, <laughs> let me tell you what I've been doing very quickly. About a year and a half ago on my PlayStation 4, I downloaded Grand Theft Auto 5, and I couldn't get into it. It just wasn't that great. So I gave it another chance, and this game rocks. I'm glad I hung in there this time. It is a funny game. Of course, it's Grand Theft Auto, so it's crazy, but it's an interesting storyline. I recommend it. A couple of things we have to talk about before we really get rolling. Um, last week, we learned that one of someone who had been a guest on this show, uh, Scott Bowden, had passed. Scott was a manager in Memphis. He is a was a Memphis wrestling historian, just a, a fun, great guy. And like I said, he's no longer with us. And we just wanted to pass along our, our thoughts and condolences to his friends and family. And also Jeff Bowdrin is struggling with cancer. And we, all of us, and in the stick to wrestling universe, or whatever the hell we yep. call ourselves, are wishing the best for Jeff. I've, I, once again, I've known Jeff for well over 30 years, so. He can't go anywhere on us, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I would now like to bring on a new guest. He is a very intelligent wrestling fan. I've known him on message boards forever talking wrestling. 
Chicago's own Vincent Waller. Vincent, how are you? And thank you for coming on. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I uh, listen to the show all the time. And as you said, just a fan who, who has opinions about wrestling. That, that's all me and Sean are. So you fit right yep. in. Wonderful. All right. And Vincent, through the generosity of his heart, I Facebook messaged him and invited him to be on the show. You know, are you available? And he said yes. And then he was like, what are we going to talk about? And I kind of said, well, what would you like to talk about? And Vincent was good enough to give us a bunch of stuff to talk about. I love this. Uh, Sean, what, what are we going to talk about first? I'll just go right in order. Why? Uh, Vincent asked why I could never. T- he kind of does it in this first person kind of thing. It's interesting. Why I could never take Shane McMahon seriously as a wrestler. Can you take Shane McMahon seriously as a wrestler, John? I cannot because I know he's not really a wrestler. He's a special attraction. Bless his heart. He tries, but especially now, like I liked Shane when he was like Vince's punk kid, like late nineties when during the attitude era. But I mean, now I can't stand him. And thankfully I think he's off TV and is going to stay off TV for a while. But you know, now in like 2019 last year, now you've got 50 year old Shane McMahon, upstaging the wrestlers. I always hated it. Vincent, give us your opinion. Exactly. I, I, you know, I enjoy, I did enjoy him initially when he was in that non-wrestler puny manager, you know, cowering behind the big show role, but, and he, and I'm not going to deny that he's done tremendous things in the ring. I mean, he did all those things with angle. Uh, but you know, to me, in my opinion, when I see a guy like Shane do the van terminator, it doesn't make me impressed with Shane. It, it, to me, it may, that makes RBD look bad to me. That exposes the whole business. And until he can go and, and have some achievements that would make me take him seriously as an athlete and some other, you know, if he was an athlete pole vaulter or a sprint, that, that'd be one thing. You accomplish something outside of the safe umbrella of your dad's company, but he's not on equal footing with the other wrestlers that have to go in there night in, night out, have to make it on merit, have to, we have to work every day a year. You know, when you work a lighter schedule, you can take those bigger bumps, I would imagine. Exactly. And and you know what? I know there are people out there when Shane takes that giant bump, they're like, oh, wow. I'm just like, get this garbage out of here. Sean, what are your thoughts on this? I'm trying to think of what athletic achievement he could obtain at this point. Maybe the decathlon at the Senior Olympics. <laughs> I, 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 was, I, I saw some meme on, on uh, Facebook. I usually hate these things, but this was funny. It mentioned that Shane now actually looks older than Vince. Uh, Vince now or Vince like in no, the No, like today. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't them. go that far. <laughs> I wouldn't either. It's an exaggeration, but... And this is not against Shane. Shane tries. I don't know how this ends up working itself out, but this isn't anything against him. He's not a wrestler. Okay, this goes back to the Andy Kaufman rule. Very simple. If you're going to book a non-wrestler, do not put him over the wrestler. You're killing your own product. You put if you want like the look if you look at the way the coffin feud went in Memphis and they got all kinds of crap for using uh, coffin for guys in the business but you know look at the way they booked him mm-hmm. Andy Coffin never went over anybody by himself every time he stepped a foot in the ring by himself he got stretched out as it should have been the only time he got anything going on is when he got the assassins in he got other people in and you know but if it's just a non wrestler straight up he got his butt kicked as he should have. And, and the reason you guys like Shane back then, because, again, they weren't pushing him as a wrestler. He was just some guy who would do an occasional funny move and whatever else. But they weren't pushing him as like as an actual guy. Now they are. So that doesn't work. And it's not his fault. It's just it's poor booking. It is. And I agree with you. Like they booked Shane 
you know, 20 years ago as a guy who had a chance against Kurt Angle. I mean, give me a break. And oh, I agree please. with you with the Andy Kaufman thing. Like, they, they booked the Lawler match perfectly. Like, Lawler says, okay, you can put me in any hole you want to. Puts him in the hold, and the whole thing completely backfires. Just one move, and Andy's getting stretched out. That was great. Say whatever you want to say about Memphis booking. They never put over a some a non-wrestler over a wrestler. Uh, I can't think of a time that they Unless, did. like, it was, they had the Jimmy Hart thing, but that was, you know, they had Kevin Sullivan and uh, Honky Tonk Man, both as the special referees, and Lawler had his hands tied or something. I mean, right. they make it so ridiculous that... But no, they don't, if it's, you know, it's either has to be some kind of weird thing, but they do not put non, because they know it kills the product. This isn't Shane's fault. They're just, they're shooting themselves in the foot. No, I agree with you. Jimmy oh. Hart putting those cuffs on Rick Rude and then the cuffs slipped and, you know, he's throwing extra powder in his eyes and, and notwithstanding all of that, Rude turned around and kicked the crap out of him. Yep. They did the same thing when Law, they did that great bit, the summer of 81, uh, where they all had to do the dream match. So what I just described was Jimmy's dream match. Lawler's was that he has his guys around the ring, and it's just a um, non no DQ match. And they booked it beautifully because there was no DQ. So Jimmy cheated his little heart out, but eventually he broke his leg. To make it all the more impressive, they broke his leg. They made sure he just get beat. He got beaten up. Exactly. Next question: The WWF killer calendar. Why not space out matches like real fights and charge more for it? Sean. Uh, I mean, I can answer that question. I mean, they went to as many markets as they could where, you know, fans would show up. Like, if you could only draw once every three months, and they only went there once every three months. And plus wrestling fans. I mean, back in the 80s, like, I don't think you could charge, like, big money for wrestling. But let's talk a little bit about the WWF killer calendar. And this was a real thing from like 84 until about mm, 89, maybe a little bit into 1990, the wrestler's schedule was this. They finish their match. They probably get back to their hotel room if they go back to, right to their hotel room. Like at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, they've got to be up to be on the 6 o'clock plane, okay? So very little sleep involved. Fly to the next city, check into the hotel if they let you check in early, rent a car, work out, and then be at the arena. So you had guys literally collapsing in the airport. You had guys who, you know, their day was take a pill to go to sleep, take a pill to get up, etc. They were supposed to be off every other Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday when they didn't have a taping. But wait, sometimes they had to work anyway. It was absolutely nuts. Vincent, give us your thoughts on the killer calendar. You know, what strikes me about it is, you know, when you read like a Dynamite Kids book or Bret Hart's book and, and they really just set out how, you know, more than anything, like it really was the killer calendar because, uh, you know, being on that cycle of, you know, you're taking uppers in the morning to get moving and then you're taking alcohol or whatever to fall asleep. And it's just, it's just horrible. And your heart goes out to these folks. And it seems to me that it's feasible. It's a thing. I mean, promotions have done it and I'm vaguely aware, like, New Japan, like recently, is, is doing these, Burn. you know, basting out the shows. Um, Burned it. And, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and then it, it also seems like, you know, it just seems like even if even if you were just, you know, cold calculating typical wrestling promoter, like these are assets, like these are your people, you, these are your stars. And to me, it kind of exposes the business when you're kind of just going around the horn with one person. Like, you know, did Hogan and Flair really need to do a house show run? I know this is a little bit past the killer calendar era, but it's this mindset of, 
just, I, I think, overexposing your stars and why not face it? There's got to be some happy middle ground. You know, this is not the way boxing works with big matches. Uh, you know, you space out the fights and you promote the, the sport in general. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I used to realize that, look, these guys can't go out. I mean, this this can't be legit that these guys are on the road, you know, fighting each other five or six nights a week. It doesn't work like that. But, you know, what the WWF eventually did is they eventually set it up so that you're not in Tampa one night, Los Angeles the next night, uh, Detroit the next night, New York the next night. Like, you know, they kind of coordinated the show so that you're taking shorter flights. But in like 84, 85, 86, they were crisscrossing the country every day. Uh, Sean, what do you think? Vince didn't invent this. They were doing killer schedules in JCP. I mean, they were and back in the, not, not just Dusty era, go back to the 70s. George Scott's doing three shows a night. That's why you had three champions, because they wanted to have a championship match at each show. Bill Watts' schedule is legendarily brutal. Uh, the basic reason is that uh, these guys are scared to death of putting all their chips in on, on one kind of role on these shows. Vern did it more because of a weather circumstance. And I'm thinking he's going to be losing a lot of guys come the, you know, the winter because it's so brutal up there. Stu had no choice. It's always terrible up there. But the problem is that that's just how they've always done it. They want to spread out the risk as much as possible. And it kills the guys. Well, again, and, and as far as the legitimacy of it, the fans have been educated that way. And if boxing could do it, they would. And they couldn't because they'd be killing their guys. But does it hurt the legitimacy? They've been doing this way for so long. I mean, how many titles does Jerry Lawler have now? 108? Yeah, I just, uh, uh, they've been doing it so long that we've all been educated to the fact that they can run out. If they did the opposite, it would look weird. <laughs> Actually, well, to your point. Go, go ahead, Jensen. Yeah, if I, if I may add, to your point, I mean, that it, it's a larger thing than, you know, WWF killer calendar is just a way for me to put a nice bow tie on sure, the phrase. Sure. I realize it's, it's a wrestling thing and, it, and it's yeah. carried on through the years. And as the media changes and now, you know, you had the Monday Night Wars and now everything is televised. I think it gets even worse and it's more business yeah. exposing. And, you know, I personally can't say, you know, that I was all that excited about like Rock versus Austin at WrestleMania when, you know, we've seen them every Monday night, <laughs> like 50 times we've seen them fight each other and contrast that with, you know, when Hulk and Ultimate Warrior and like was it Royal Rumble 92 or something bumped into each other and looked at and the, the electricity in the air because these two folks have never faced off. I mean, it just seems like sometimes less is more with, you know, putting on so many shows and having so many, you know, you, you need to have, you know, a headliner and now you're, you're kind of burning through, you know, things that you could milk better. It's been a long time uh, wrestling uh, maxim, I guess, that you and, and many businesses too, just not wrestling, that you want to spread out your risk as much as possible. So that way, this, and, and doing like 300 shows, that way, if you have three, four, or you know, 10, whatever bad shows, fine. If you're doing 60 shows, you have 10 bad shows, now you get a problem. It's the same difference between like an NFL schedule and the NBA. It just, it's just basically spreading out the risks so they don't, you know. Now you may come back and say, well, you'd figure they'd be able to, if they only had 60 shows, they could bang them all out. You would figure, but funny things happen like this, for one thing. The other argument that I have for less shows is, you know, it seems like the wrestlers would be able to go a little bit more balls to the wall. And, you know, I think part of the reason why the work rate, if you want to call it that, was so terrible in the 80s. I mean, aside from the fact that that's not what the audience needed, is that these folks were just trying to get by. These wrestlers were just trying to get by and they were like dead tired in the ring and just trying to survive to the next show. And it, and it seems like in a way it's increasing your risk because you're putting them out there more often to get more injuries. OK, sure. this is important. 
In 19, right around 82, 83, the WWF started promoting Los Angeles and San Diego, thus necessitating flight travel. Back in the day, you know, a wrestler could, you know, crash in his hotel room after the show, sleep till 11, who cares, be up, do that four-hour car ride to the next town, and they were fine. The same thing with JCP. They didn't make their guys take the 6 o'clock flight out. Vince made the guys take the 6 o'clock flight out because if for some reason you can't get on that flight, whether whatever reason flight gets canceled, you've got all day to figure out how to get to that next town. So that was the big change. I actually wouldn't mind taking the first flight out. I'd rather have the time before the event going um, back the other way. The problem is sometimes they couldn't check into their hotel rooms until like 2, 3 o'clock. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Uh, next up. Uh, okay. This is this is good. This is going to be the big market tease, by the way. I already picked it. The greatest defender of kayfabe, the guy you would send in to vouch for the authenticity of wrestling if there was a lot at stake. Uh, what is Bruno for 200, John? <laughs> and it depends on what we're talking about. And, and I like to answer this question two different ways. If you want to have someone like on the David Letterman show. I would have three picks, Bruno San Martino, Ric Flair, and Nick Bockwinkle. I saw Ric Flair on, uh, what's her name, Sally Jesse Raphael's show, and he was outstanding, like, as a spokesperson for the business. If you're looking for a guy who, okay, you know, this is the toughest guy in the world, I have to put myself back into my 1986 mindset, because... When I started getting The Observer in 87, uh, I started finding out, like, okay, this guy, you know, Harley Race, Bret Hart, Dynamite Kid, guys that I wouldn't have guessed were, like, really tough guys were. I would have gone, if I had to pick one guy that was going to go, like, you know, not knowing anything about insider wrestling, that was going to be on my side in a bar fight or someone who could just beat anyone else up, I would have gone Terry Gordy. Knowing what I know now, I would go Kurt Angle mid nineties, but uh, Vincent, what do you think? Well, you know, I just, I, I appreciate a good ridiculous hypothetical. So that's why I'm posing this is who, who's, who's the guy you'd send in. If you, if you needed to convince an impartial tribunal that wrestling is, and always has been on the up and up. And for me, that's gorilla monsoon. And I, I kind of see him. And, and part of this is my own bias as a young, you know, having grown up a WWF Mark in the early, in the, 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 the last, stages of the dying days of the kayfabe era in the early 80s mid 80s and gorilla to me always had this he he didn't he never sounded like he was being condescending he always you know covered for the things that he needed to cover for and and he's one of the last of of a dying breed you know kayfabe really obviously hasn't been a thing for quite a while and you know never to his dying day did a shoot interview or said anything that would expose the business and uh he just had this like elder statesmanship where you know he, he sounded very educated and forthcoming. And I was lurking on the stick to wrestling Facebook page the other day, yesterday. And I noticed somebody had posted that video of what was a David San Martino, where he, he, you know, goes against what he was supposed to do. Uh, The Ron Shaw match, the Ron Shaw match. And even there, you know, gorillas in there covering for it. Uh, no way he would have ever tapped out. He's obviously just waving in pain and none of that Mark Madden sarcasm. I'm too smart for this. So my pick would be Gorilla Monsoon. And Gorilla Monsoon, too, back in his day when he was wrestling, was one of the few wrestlers out there. I mean, a very small percentage who had a college education, and he did wrestle in college. Sean, give us your thoughts. Well, I I guess there's two ways to look at this. I I was going like, 
Bruno is the first guy I'm thinking of because it was, you know, to the last year of the man's life, he's saying that Buddy tapped out. I mean, yeah. he's not even letting that go. So, and, uh, but this, it goes into a second part of that though, because if you look back on it and you're kind of thinking of those two guys, you could see it happening, you know, and legitimately, I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying I could see it happening. I could see Bruno doing that. And I could see Buddy saying exactly what he said. Now, again, or at least what Bruno claims he says, but that adds the legitimacy to it. Is that that's that kind of it's that the old Johnny Valentine line I've brought up here a bunch of times. I don't care if they believe in wrestling. I care if they believe in me. Well, and speaking of which, another name I'll throw out there is Vern Gagne. Yes. Yes. No, who I was going to say, but if you're talking about sending somebody out for an interview, Gordon Soley. That's a good point. There's, there's a legitimacy to him. He uh, that was kind of Gordon's thing. There was a, there was a Walter Cronkite esque legitimacy and you know what i have i answered this a little below but i'm going to bring it up here is another one is lance russell and this is why lance would do these little things where if the product got too silly or a match wasn't very good he would kind of hint it on the air if you're paying attention he would say this is a card you want to go to but he wouldn't say that every week yeah so he always made sure those guys had their legitimacy now as we say this pretty much every guy back in the 70s if you even brought this up would have smacked you in the head Schultz was not the only guy who would have done that. No, no. You know what? I want to talk a little bit about the Bruno Rogers match. I believe Bruno, and I'll tell you why. The match went like 56 seconds or something like that. Supposedly, Bruno states that he walked in the ring and he told Buddy Rogers, here's what we're doing, and that's it. And Rogers said that he was sick or something and went along with it. There's no way, in my opinion, this is just the way I look at it. That Buddy Rogers would be like, oh, yeah, I'll lose by submission in 56 seconds to Bruno San Martino. There's no way Buddy Rogers is doing that. So I believe Bruno's story. If only we could check the video. Yeah, really. There's still <laughs> pictures, but no video. And yeah, like I said, I mean, before Bruno even said anything, I was like taken aback by the idea that, you know, Buddy Rogers would do that because Buddy Rogers was known as, you know, ah, where I mean, I don't know where that line is between being selfish and looking out for yourself the way you have to in the wrestling business. And plenty of people said, buddy crossed that line. He was just selfish. Well, yeah, he's had the incident. He used to carry his own guys with him, uh, like Billy Darnell. And he would have his own people, uh, Johnny Brand. And he would be the same guys he would be up against over and over and over again. But now uh, this is, if you're right and this, I'm assuming it came on order. I'm sorry. I'm assuming you're saying if, if Bruno did this, it came up on order. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe... yeah, he's not freelancing here. Vince called it. Uh, no, I, oh, I, I know what you're saying. No, I don't think Vince senior called it. I think, I think there was a plan for a title change, but not like that. Well, how do you think this went down then? If Vince didn't, well, what does Vince say afterwards? <laughs> Probably nothing because I mean, I'm, I'm from what I understand, he was not happy with buddy Rogers. Well, I understand that, but that's one thing. Another thing is going rogue on him. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a good point too. But I can't know. imagine Bruno keeps the belt for eight years if he does this not on order. Uh Bruno, you know what? Vince McMahon Sr. was a businessman, and he made lots of money with Bruno San Martino yeah, as champion. Bruno wasn't Bruno yet, but he became Bruno, and as soon well, as yeah, Bruno left, they, he stopped making as much money. I mean, he yeah. gave Bruno. A, a deal so lucrative to come back in 1973 that supposedly Sam Mushnick called Vince McMahon Sr. and yelled at him. He's like, you, you're giving him way more than the NWA champion, and he's only working 15, 16 dates a month. 
And so, as a like, reminder, Bruno wasn't the hugest draw in the world for that first run. The second run he was. But Pedro was a bigger draw than Bruno was in the first run. That is not my understanding of it. And if he mm-hmm. was a bigger draw, why would McMahon offer Bruno the moon and the stars to come back? Because I guess from what you always tell me, uh, Pedro, oh, okay, I'll qualify my statement by saying I'm referring to mostly the garden shows, like the big shows. But from you tell me the other shows, he didn't draw very, very well. Although I see in the garden, he always kind of drew Pedro, meaning Pedro. Now, I'm not saying this about the second run. The second run, he was a, you know, Bruno was like a god. That's different. All right. But go, going back to Buddy Rogers, I, you know, I sometimes, yeah. I don't know if this is just me, but I, I, you know, you wonder if Vince McMahon saw some parallel between Buddy Rogers and, you know, kind of like Shawn Michaels and his diva attitude and having his click, you know, much the way that Buddy Rogers had his circle of guys that, you know, that were the only people he would wrestle. Um, and is that, is that what, what some of the permissive attitude towards, you know, Shawn Michaels came from? Not that Sean was ever on Buddy Rogers' level, but I'm just, I just—I've wondered about that parallel. If anybody else, as far that. as a click, yeah, you can very much say that Buddy Rogers had a, a very specific click of guys that he brought with him. I mean, just take a look at some of his results. It's the same five or six guys, right? Which, which seems like to me, like it was a kind of a, you can't yeah. kind of give the precedent for what the click did later on. Well, and that was a problem is that because Buddy was the draw. So all the money was being, that's why, this is why Bill Miller and, you know, they all got mad at him in Ohio because he was only wrestling the same guys and they were basically keeping him out of the money. In my hands, the history of professional wrestling, Madison Square Garden. And let me see, I just picked a, ran- I really did pick a random year, 1964. Attendance, 18,000, 16,000, oh. 16,000, 18,000, 18,000, 16,000. 14,000, that sucks. 18,000. Bruno was drawing. Go down to like toward the end. Uh, The end of Bruno's run? Yeah, the first one. The first one, okay. Sean doubling down on the... All right, uh, starting October 73... Jesus, starting October 73, 22,000, 16,000, 22,000. 73, no, no, no. I mean, the end of Bruno's first run. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That was 71. We're like looking at 67. Yeah, like 68, 69 in there somewhere. I had the same book you're looking at, and I saw a few of those cards against the Beast. Now, granted, they weren't giving him any help. No, you know what? You have a point. Uh, starting May 69, 7,600, 5,500, 11,000, 10,000, 16,000, 20,000, 14,000, 20,000, 17,000. So it doesn't look too bad. Well, again, I, I'm just saying, well, first of all, Pedro was a better draw than he gets credit for. And no, he was a draw. I'm just saying he wasn't the same draw as he was the second time. Second time was like over the moon crazy. Okay. And, and Pedro definitely did draw in Madison Square Garden. I'm looking at these. But from what I've always heard, he drew in, in New York, but he wasn't yeah. as, as effective elsewhere. And of course, I don't have those figures, so I can't say for sure. But that's what I've he always He looked okay heard. in Boston. But yeah, that's, that was that – was, to answer your question, why did they bring back Bruno? That was why. All right. I mean, Phil, and just to finish this weird but good tangent we went off on, Philadelphia has always been a really weird wrestling town. Like one month, it'll draw like 15,000. Inexplicably, it'll drop to 7,000 the next month. There's, there's like no rhyme or reason to it. Who could have possibly seen them not liking the dynamic dudes? It's just <laughs> impossible. So to, as a part two to that question, who was the toughest in kayfabe? Bruno for 200, John. Oh, in toughest in kayfabe. 
Well, I, you know what? I already kind of answered that by accident when I when I said Terry Gordy. I kind of like, but you know, actually in kayfabe, in the early mid '90s, when people started getting on the internet and finding out how tough, what's his name, King Tonga is Meng. I mean, kayfabe became reality, and he was over. I mean, to this day, people think he was. Something that he wasn't as far as being a wrestler goes. Yeah, but that's not Jay Fay. Tough guy, tough guy rep. Yeah, he was a legit tough guy, though. I mean, if we're right. talking like, I get Bruno may have been too, but who was like a guy that just from the magazines, you're like, oh my God, this is the baddest man ever? Ter- I, Terry Gordy. Terry I, I, Gordy. I yeah. How about you? Mm-hmm. How about you, Vincent? Well, regarding Mang, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to know. It seemed like they did start to book him more in line with his backstage reputation in the later days of WCW. I remember him in hardcore matches, just, you know, I, I, mean, I suppose he always would no-sell the the chair shots to the head, you know. But as far as toughest and cave, I mean, I, I just think about, you know, to me, the Road Warriors come to mind, like the peak Road Warriors. You know, yes. you talk about greatest tag teams and people talk about like the Dudleys, but if you look at how they were booked, like, yeah, they, they would win, but they wouldn't just steamroll over their opponents. Like, you know, the LOD looked awesome and they, you know, Hawk just portrayed this vicious, this vicious guy, like, like a bad guy out of a Robocop movie or something. Obviously Goldberg, you know, people that, that went on those long streaks yeah. would, would, would be up there along with the toughest in kayfabe and certainly Bruno San Martino as well. Yeah, good answer. You know what? I, and just to interject this, I don't know where this thing who are these people there's that say the Dudleys are the best tag team of all time? I, I saw Taz say it once, and I was like, yeah, right. They, they were not better than the Midnight Express. They were not better than the Rock and Roll Express. I never liked the Dudleys. But anyway, Sean, let's get your thoughts on this. Kayfabe, I guess. 14-time champion, whatever they are. Uh, Bruno, because they were still in good with the Westons at this point. They were still good with Bill Apter, so he was getting pushed all over the place in, in the magazines. He had the championship for eight years. And again, I think this is part of the reason going back to the previous question of why he was, you know, so start, not all of it, but part of it is why he was so tough on gay fame is because he was pushed as a Superman. You know, it, it's, it's funny that, um, you know, everyone automatically assumes, and don't get me wrong. I loved Luthez, but everyone automatically says, Oh yeah. Luthez would tie Bruno up a, 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 into a pretzel in a shoot. Bruno had freakish strength. I mean, you can only and Bruno beat. had skills. He, Bruno he did didn't show it because of, well, what Vincent was saying before about the work rate in WWF from uh, in the 80s, that was going on <laughs> well before then. Uh, they Basically, the fans were educated to that type of match, so that's why they did it. Bruno could actually wrestle a little bit. If he went down to Florida, he would. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't on a Luthez level as like a hooker guy or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, he was so ridiculously strong that I can't just sign on on the idea that Bruno wouldn't have a chance. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I've seen him a little bit. I know, you know, Dez has a somewhat legit. It's it's just so hard. I mean, none of us really, you know, know. We're just kind of guessing from what other guys say. You know how much you can trust them. No, no way. Okay, I I am looking forward to talking about this next thing. Okay, and next up, did pro wrestlers see intrinsic value in wrestling back in the day? Or and I've Vincent, just to make sure I'm clear here, by wrestling you mean the actual like the sport, having the the amateur background. The sport, well, no. I, I mean, would, would they buy a ticket to see a wrestling show in their free time oh. because they enjoy it? Or oh, did, they, okay. did, they look at the, did they look at the fans and say, you're all a bunch of marks for paying for this? I wouldn't pay for this. Okay. Or did they mostly see the audience as marks in the derogatory sense, John? 
This kind of started turning around in the 80s. My understanding, more than my understanding. I mean, I personally have known a couple of wrestlers that, you know, real old timers who think that anyone who would pay money to, to see this crap is a complete idiot. And they they really had a sense of just contempt for their audience. Now, obviously not every single guy, but there were a lot of guys back in the day. And like I said, this kind of changed in the 80s. A lot of guys grew up wanting to be wrestlers, but a lot of guys back 50s, 60s, 70s just kind of drifted into the sport because they couldn't get real jobs doing anything else. And it was seen as a con game. And the people in the audience were the ones who got conned. Vincent, obviously you have some thoughts on this. And I do. And that's the sense I got too. You know, I grew up in the early, you know, I was growing up in the eighties and, and kind of was in that middle tier where it certainly seems like in recent days, you know, wrestlers nowadays enjoy the sport and are fans of the sport. And whereas back in the day, you know, you heard all kinds of stories and some of that comes from, I think, just the history of, of wrestling and coming from the carnivals and the idea being to, like, you know, rip people off and people that can't get work elsewhere and, and tend to live on the underbelly side of society. Um, they just had that attitude towards it. I thought there was something interesting in Superstar Billy Graham's book, which, you know, Superstar Billy Graham, you never know if what he's saying is true or not, but I thought it rang true where he was mentioning how some of his contemporaries had that attitude towards them as marks and looking down their noses at them. And he, he said, I always just saw them as fans and they appreciated what we did. And some other wrestler, I can't remember who it was. It was kind of funny. He was like, if I'm the one jumping off a ladder into broken glass, like who's the mark? (laughs) Good point. Story time. Superstar Billy Graham came to wrestle in Nashua in 1982 at the junior high school that my brother was going to. And he pulled up and he asked my brother and his friends, Hey, you know, where's the building? And they showed him. And he's like, is there a convenience store around? And they were like, yeah, right there. And like, he's like, come on, I'll buy you all some candy and stuff. And yeah, superstar Billy Graham like brought my brother and his friends like candy at the store. It wasn't like creepy candy. He's just like, yeah, hey, here's some candy. Vincent, I don't think this is generational. I think this is people who are smart business people and people who are not smart business people. You have them today and you have them back then. I, I think if you ask, like, I think someone like Graham, well, it's not a coincidence. That Graham says, yeah, I like the fans and the fans like him because they aren't as dumb as he thinks they are. And if there's an open contempt and you're not a heel, that's going to come across a little bit. I can't buy the fact that, say, someone like Jerry Lawler or even Jackie Fargo is going to say, you know, even Phil, I can't imagine they didn't. You're not going to be successful. You're not going to come across as genuine for 30 years or for a long period of time in the territory. Now, if you're talking about a guy who pops in the, out of areas and stuff like that, yeah, I could see where they were going to probably get a little bit bitter and sick of it. So I think it entirely depends on the background of the person. But I will say this, that anyone who did not consider those people customers were doing themselves a disservice because that's where you're getting most of your money from, getting all your money from. Yeah, you know, Lex Luger gets a lot of heat from a lot of the guys who used to be in the business. And Lex was someone who he was in the gym being Lex Luger, working out, great body. I don't know who, but someone walked up to him who was in the wrestling business. and like, look, you can make a lot of money in this business. And Luger, who knew nothing about wrestling, like within a year, was the, the top star in Florida. And a lot of guys are just resentful that he never paid his dues and that he didn't grow up wanting to be in the business. And when he got in the business, he didn't appreciate, you know, being in the business. So 
that, that's what I've heard from several people. And, you know, Lex, I never had a problem with Lex. He was always cool with me, but a lot of guys did have a problem with him. It just seems to me that some guys have this turn and burn mentality that mm-hmm. if I can separate you from your money and you never come back to see me again, I don't care, which again, could have something to do with if, if they're moving from territory to territory. Exactly. Um, and then, and then, you know, I think Bret Hart gets undue heat for being quote unquote, a mark for himself, you know, and just personally, I appreciate, I'm not even the biggest Bret Hart fan, but I appreciate the fact that he took himself seriously, that he was proud to be the champion, that to him, that meant that he had honed his craft. He was good enough to be chosen to be the champion. And, you know, to me, it's like, if you don't buy what you're selling, why should I buy it? Exactly. That's a good point. All right. What's our next topic, Sean? Next up. Moves that a lot of wrestlers do, but few do well. <laughs> I got a list. I've got one. I, I picked out my favorite one, and it is the what Dusty Rhodes used to call the bionic elbow. And my God, <sighs> bionic. Uh, talk about a, a term from many moons ago. Uh, I have two answers for that one. Number one, Buddy Landell, when he added that spin to that elbow drop, it was something to behold. It was unbelievably great finisher. And then you have Tully when he did it, Tully Blanchard when he did it. Like, he would drop three elbows on a guy in five seconds. He was moving so fast. So a lot of guys do that move or did that move. We don't see it that much anymore. But, I mean, those are the guys who did it exceptionally well. Vincent, your thoughts? Uh, I, I think about Rick Rude's uh, Rude Awakening. I thought that was the next, I mean, it's just a neck breaker. It's just a transitional move, you know, for, in most for, for, for the last 20 years. Uh, but he would really cinch up on it. He would really move really slow and then drop really violently in the contrast of moving slow and deliberate and then dropping kind of recklessly. And, and sometimes, you know, some of these things look like, well, that might really hurt. And again, I'm just a fan. I, you know, so some guys that might be sloppy, I might appreciate it because it looks like it hurts and maybe that's unethical on my part, but you know, whereas somebody, somebody like a Bob Orton, that's like a worker's worker and people appreciate that he doesn't hurt them. But to me, none of that looks like it hurts. So I, I Rude's uh, neck breaker almost looks sloppy in a sense, the way that it came crashing down. Another one that I would mention is, you know, the iron Sheik's camel clutch and the way he would cinch up on it against jobbers. Oh Again, yeah, yeah. He he probably was really hurting those jobbers, but uh, it's not for, for from where I'm sitting. I mean, I'm just trying to enjoy the show as a mark. So, uh, and and Iron Sheik's uh, suplexes. I mean, he would he when I when I really just lose myself in the moment and and just you know sh- shut off my critical brain. It's like I could I could buy him. And I and I know you on the show. You're like, well, why would he be the champion at that time? Um, you know, I wasn't I didn't have all the context of understanding him as a mid card guy or anything like that. To me, he was like the wrestling Mike Tyson. He was like this little undersized guy who obviously really knew what he was doing when it came to the suplexes. I mean, like the form that he had and the way that he kind of just pivoted his body, you know, he was, and he really was, I mean, he had those legit skills and you could see it that when he would strike that he didn't have those striking skills much, you know, the way that he had those wrestling skills, but you see a lot of suplexes, but to me, it's like, you know, he was Taz before Taz with those crazy suplexes. Excellent. You know what? That's that's an excellent analogy. I like that comparison. Sean, what do you think? The pile driver. They're either killing people with it or his head misses by three feet and he like goes into these convulsions, the guy who got it. I mean, it's I know what I'm gonna loop one of uh Vincent's questions up in here too, because he asked about a uh Rob Van Dam's stupid cell on the pile driver where he does that. I'm assuming you think that the flat back you were talking about thing he does. The way I would, it looked to me like he would take the pile driver and then just bounce off of his head. And yeah. it just looked, 
incredibly brutal, but the fact that he would do it all the time just seemed like bad judgment. Right. I mean, Vincent just gave a very good definition of a good worker. Someone who makes something look very painful, but it's not. I mean, that, that is what you're supposed to be. So the pile driver is a sensitive thing. Now, you should not be bouncing at any point because you just had three vertebrae compressed. Yeah. So that doesn't usually go for bouncing. So I saw Lala do this once. He got hit with a pile driver by Sweetan. And he was like, you know, going into the convulsions and stuff like that. I'm like, no, which is just <laughs> I, if you're selling well, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing this Kurt Angle dramatic, you know, fall into the third row. It means that you're doing something that would match the move that just happened. OK, so it's like, you know, it's like someone it's like in a, like a Western. Someone comes over, gets shot, and then he gives a speech afterwards. <laughs> You know who did absolutely brutal looking pile drivers? Like I would if I was wrestling when this guy was around, like I'd be like, We're not using that spot. Bob but, Backlund looked like he maimed guys with the pile driver. Do you ever see Rogers' pile drivers? Buddy Rogers. Yes, okay. Nasty. They look completely out of control. What Buddy would do is he would start with the pile driver, but he would just pull the back of your trunks and just everyone would go flying backwards. It looks like it was completely out of control. I'm sure it was perfectly planned the whole way. It just looks nasty, though. Uh, I always love Don Morocco's, too. I mean, uh, I got to throw out Macho Man. And I think what made it more impressive is that he rarely did the pile driver. You know, he, he did it randomly once to a referee in WCW, and the guy's shirt buttons all popped. <laughs> that just added to it, and it just looked brutal. Yeah, Savage had a great pile driver, and I don't, yeah. I don't remember him ever using it in the WWF, but he used it in Memphis, and it was great. Yeah, he had that Memphis Lawler pile driver. <laughs> the Ricky Morton one where he put him through a table. Oh, yeah, on the table, yeah. I want to give one more move. I mean, I yeah. got I to mention Jimmy Snuka's Superfly Splash. I mean, just the way he flew through the air, you know, other people do belly splashes. It somehow just doesn't look the same. I mean, he looked like the Michael Jordan of the sport when he was flying through the air like that. You're right. No one could touch that move the way Jimmy Snuka did it. And one move on the negative side is Gino Hernandez's ridiculous elbow off the top. Yes, that was terrible. Ebbs and flows of promo ability. Guys that never lost it and guys that peaked at certain windows of time. John? Well, I'll tell you, I've got two names I want to mention. I think Ric Flair is one of the greatest interviews in the history of pro wrestling, if not the greatest. But there was a time right around the beginning of Nitro where he was the worst interview in wrestling, and it wasn't his fault. He didn't have a program, but they brought him out there every week because he's Ric Flair and he has the star power, and he would talk for three minutes and he wouldn't say anything. And this went on for a long time. It was horrible. But you know, if you give Ric Flair something to talk about, he'll give you a great interview. Another time he was terrible was when they brought him back in the beginning, like, Spring 83, and once again, he had nothing to talk about. He had no program, and that's why he was bad. Another guy, Michael Hayes, used to be one of, if not the best interview in the sport. We've talked about Hayes quickly declining in 1989. I mean, his work died, and his interview style died. He would go out there every week and say the same thing, and I don't know what happened with him. If he just, like, gave up on the business, you know, after... The uh, WCW got purchased, or the NWA at that time. But uh, Can I give know, a theory on that? Yeah, go ahead. My thing with Hayes in that year is the fact that I don't think his promos work if he doesn't have Terry Gordy with him. I don't know. You can't exactly be intimidating when it's you and Jimmy Jam. And that Jeez. was his promo style, the mocking, taunting kind of thing. And you can do that if you know Crazy Buddy and Terry are there. 
But if it's just you, Precious, and Jimmy Jam, well, I mean, it's not going to quite have the same effect. No, I'm going to tell you why that's not true. Because the year before, in World Class 1988, he was still laying down excellent interviews while feuding with Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts. Well, I guess. I I saw him give good interviews outside. Yeah, I'm going to agree with John. I I saw him give a a good interview in a feud he was having against Flair where he's saying... A nature boy, what's that? A guy that runs naked through the woods? You know, had had the audience kind of, you know, just laughing along with him and, and following all of his words. I agree, by, but by 89, 90, I mean, he looked like your embarrassing old drunk uncle. Maybe he took the, <laughs> maybe he took the WCW Prozac. Well, sorry, Mike, I tried. You know what? That's probably what happened. Just like, okay, I've mentally checked out of this. I'm just I'm here collecting paychecks. So, Vincent, how about you? What's your opinion on a guy like that? Well, I just want to say ebbs and flows in general. Like, I don't think people talk about that much when we talk about the good promo guys. You know, if it's if it's baseball, like you talk about how good the guy was for how many years. And sometimes a guy gives one or two really great promos and he's just thought of as a great promo guy when that's not the case. And I think Flair needs so much. He gets a lot of credit, but I mean, he can't be understated the volume of his great promo, you know. But if I'll give one example, I mean, to me, Hulk Hogan it was never what he said. What he said was always kind of nonsensical and, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't age that well. It was how he said it. And when yeah. he was, what was it? 330 pounds or something like that. And in his prime, you know, 84 through 87, he had that, you know, brother, you know, just yeah. you know, like the energy of it was like, this sounds like a guy that'll just twist your head right off. And then later on, you know, WCW he's like, he sounded kind of just like tired and raspy and worn out. And you can have the same subject matter, but if you can't convey it with the same energy, it just doesn't work. Energy and confidence. Yeah. One thing I want to mention, too, about Ric Flair. I mean, I saw his a a lot of his babyface interviews when he was in Mid-Atlantic, like 79, uh, 80. He did a great babyface interview as well. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that, again, it's energy and confidence. And confidence is finding your voice. The guy that I thought of, second I saw this question, was Steve Austin. Steve's promos were good. But he never really, you know, Stunning Steve wasn't Steve. It was obvious that Stunning Steve, I mean, you know, it was a great wrestler. But once he started being, I won't say like he was superstar Steve in ECW, but that was basically the precursor to Stone Cold. Once he started, once, you know, Paul said, you know what, do what you got to do. And once he started doing that, he started to find the voice. And at that point, you started to see him get more and more confident. And then after that, all the promos were kind of, even if it was, like, you know, um, one example I used a while ago when this a similar question to this was Dusty Rhodes. If you actually sat down and wrote down a Dusty Rhodes promo, it'd be gibberish. But it doesn't matter because it's the way Dusty presents it. It's awesome. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, and Dusty, you're right. A lot of the time, it, it's you know, not what's being said, but how it's being said. And you guys are right. Hulk and Dusty had that. Dusty, in a sentence, actually claimed that factories were being shut down because he was injured. Weren't they? <laughs> well, I, I'm just saying. And everyone's like, yeah, what, what? What What did he say? You know, I mean, the thing that, like, the go right out to, like, if you just, like, look at the actual text of the uh, Hard Times promo. Good Lord. Uh, it's, I, you it's, know still, what? it's still real to me, damn it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> though. But he got it over because he's done, and that's why he's dusty. I, someone asked me, like, was that interview really seen as, as legendary at the time? And my yes. observation is no. Oh, it only got that way when Maria Menounos made a big deal out of it. Like, oh, I, no, 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 no. I cannot disagree with this anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. I remember this at the time. This was a big deal. This was the setup for Starcade. 
<laughs> that promo was like the starting line. You touched on Stone Cold. I just wanted to touch on that as well. I mean, I, I but I, I would just argue that he peaked and then he went right back down. I mean, when he when they had that you know ill advised heel turn and then the what chant and that just it, to me he was at his best when he kind of had his edge still just before WrestleMania 14 between 13 and 14. You know, he had this anger, he had this hurt that was very visceral and real. And here's a guy that's been screwed over time and time again. He doesn't really trust that this time is going to be the time. And, and he just sounded unhinged, uncontrolled and real. I think he had that. I think he lost it. It's very hard to keep that energy up at that level. I mean, that's why Rick yeah, when, you're, when you're crying in the silk sheets, yeah. I always thought Steve Austin was a good interview, but there was a time in WCW when, I mean, it's, it was always like this in WCW. You had guys making sure that the wrong guy didn't get over, and Steve Austin and Brian Pillman were the wrong guys. Uh, oh, they were the most over people in the organization that time. And they and made, it had nothing to do with them, and it pissed them off. And certain people made sure that they had ice water poured over them. Let's put it that way. The most perfect ah. American tag team in 10 years, and they kill it. Geniuses. Well, you know what? If Austin and Pillman get over as the big stars, that means two other guys don't get that spot. And whoever the booker was who didn't come up with the idea looks like an idiot. And it, was a, it was a booking committee, and you know how those go. It was where no one was really in charge. I think we have time for one more topic. It's a topic where... We have to be mean to people. Wrestlers that you feel a promotion shoved down your throat. Okay. Even before I started getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter and got, you know, way smart and up to the sport, I knew something was up with the Von Erichs. I mean, what a coincidence that, you know, Fritz Von Erich, who was the big star, now his three sons, and I'm talking about Kevin, Kerry, and David, all happen to be the big stars over the years. And then we have a fourth brother enter the fray, Mike Von Erich. And as soon as I saw Mike Von Erich wrestling, I'm like, okay, something is really wrong here. This guy has no athleticism. Uh, He's small, but his last name is Von Erich. So he's getting this huge push that there's no way. I mean, he just didn't deserve that push. No one deserves that push right out of the gate. I mean, it, it takes time for a wrestler to figure out what he's doing. And, you know, Christmas night, 1983, he's in the semi-main event with Kevin against the Freebirds. The whole thing looked ridiculous. And, I mean, you want to talk about a guy shoved down your throat. That was Mike Von Erich. Vincent, share your thoughts on a wrestler of the promotion shoved down your throat. Well, I can think of a couple, but I I guess one I'll throw out is Justin Credible, who in, like, you know, latter-day ECW was kind of the... uh, he was the Black Bart of ECW. And I, mean, if, <laughs> I think you're doing you know, a disservice to Black Bart. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you want your champion to look like somebody important, somebody that's worth, you know, that, that, that's not going to work for cheap. <laughs> like, he just looks low rent. I mean, the guy worked his butt off. He's probably the nicest guy in the world, but, you know, he's the Portuguese man of war. That's just not the top guy. And he comes in wearing these, you know, $10 Kmart jorts and a ratty t-shirt and just look like crap. And this is the guy that you're just putting over everybody. Uh, another one would be Jeff Jarrett and latter day WCW, even though I think slap nuts is funny, <laughs> but he just like, why, like, why, why was he just joined at the hip with Vince Roos? And, and you just get that feeling. And it's this resentment that you get when it's like, this guy is 
being shoved down my throat, not because he's the best guy, but because they decided he's going to be the star. Yeah. You know, it's funny you brought up just incredible. I couldn't agree more. I mean, Taz kind of got shoved down our throats, but it didn't feel like it. I mean, he got pushed heavy and they fed him the entire promotion. Yet it felt like he deserved that role. He was he was worthy of being the top star in ECW. Just incredible. It never felt that way with him. Patch had some charisma. Yeah. And, you know, just incredible. I mean, it's it's almost like the same thing. It's like Paul E fell in love with the idea of taking the Tasmaniac gimmick away from Taz and, and making him, you know, I forget his real name, Peter something, but they introduced him as such, you know, one day and it all worked out. Or it's just incredible. Like I said, it just felt like crap from day one. Sean, your thoughts? It's uh, well, the the whole thing with Taz stemmed off of the neck injury. Okay, so there was the background. Justin just showed up. I can't agree with anyone. I, I hated him. I really wasn't watching the ECW product that time, but nonetheless, Taz was different. Taz's angle came up off of the injury he had from Malenko, where they messed up the pile driver and he went to the hospital. So he was gone for a while. Then he came out for the November to remember and gave this epic promo where he just buries everybody and he says, basically, I hate all of it. But it made sense because he was bitter about basically getting blown off over the pile driver. And then it just kind of built from there. And Sabu was his tag team partner at the time. So that's why that whole thing started. But so it didn't feel Justin just showed up and uh, he was pushed to the moon. And there was the same promo over and over again. And he never lost. It was like the NWO. I mean, Taz lost occasionally. He never lost. It was, oh, I couldn't agree with you. The other two guys I wrote down were Eric Watts. That was painful. That was I painful. mean, that was just brutal. And the other was uh, George Goulas in uh, Tennessee. And Eric Watts was absolutely brutal. You know, Bill Watts shows up and makes it clear that I am now in charge. And the first thing, you know, even if you don't know anything about inside wrestling, I mean, Bill Watts says, hey, I am in charge. And the next thing you know, his kid who played quarterback at Louisville is now the shining new star. And everyone had to know that, hey, something's up here. Dustin Rhodes in WCW, like 1991, deserves a uh, an honorable mention here. But once again, it has been the quickest 60 minutes of my week. We've got so many other cool stuff that we'd like to talk about, but we've run out of time. Vincent, thank you for taking the time to be on the show, man. You were a great guest. It's been my pleasure. I really always enjoy the show and happy to contribute. You're very welcome. And I want to thank my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin, for everything he does on this show. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for making us sound halfway decent. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay on. <laughs>